Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to be in this place this morning. Whether we're here virtually or we're here in person, I know that your spirit's with us right now, and I ask that you would guide us as we examine your word. So teach us now, Father, as we put our attention on the things that you have to say to us, and use these things in the week ahead that we might be a force for your kingdom. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to encourage you to go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 18. And you might be thinking, where's our Genesis study? Well, we're kind of putting that on hold for a few weeks. And until we get done with Easter, we'll pick it up again, the E2E study, right after Easter. But these few weeks leading up to it, we have a, a short series called The Walk. And it begins this morning in Luke. So maybe electronically you have it or you have a hard copy. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. You'll be able to see it up on the screen as well. And I'm going to ask you to follow along with me on that. Here's specifically what I'm going to do with you. We're going to go back to three weeks before the crucifixion because approximately that's where we're at in our calendar. So we're going to go on this walk that takes us back to three weeks before, and then next week it'll be two weeks before what was Jesus doing, and then the following week, one week before, leading right up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So if you step back to the first century, you would ask yourself this question, what is Jesus doing at this stage in time as he's walking toward this final week? We discover that after three years of being very deliberate about moving throughout Israel, he's got the disciples by his side, he's got all the huge crowds following him at some points, and a lot of friends who are not disciples, but they're just followers, they're coming along and they want to see what he's doing. They notice that he makes a very deliberate turn in what he knows will be his final trip toward Jerusalem. Stepping back a couple months from the three weeks before, Dr. Luke records that Jesus in chapter 9 made a very deliberate turn towards Jerusalem. Look at me on the screen at this, Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, the, the English translation doesn't do a very good job, actually, of capturing what's going on here. And so you put, see in parentheses, in the brackets, I put approaching, when the days were approaching. Well, that's, that's another form, another synonym of the translation, but it's still in English. It doesn't quite capture what's going on. So you may have noticed if you picked up the notes this morning that there's multiple words that are included in the notes that are not English words, but they're Greek and Hebrew. Here's the first one of those. And it's describing this word approach. And and it says to fulfill completely. Or like swamping a boat. Now that I can deal with. That I can picture. I've seen boats that are so full of water that they're swamped. And there's no room for any cargo. Nothing else can get inside them. That's the imagery that's actually going on. The Greek language captures it really, really well. He's accomplished something. So for something to be fulfilled to the degree that it captures Jesus' attention to change direction means there had to have been a plan in the first place. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, how would you know when you've fulfilled the plan? So there's a plan that's been laid, and he knows that the fulfillment of the plan is at hand, and so he's changing direction and going towards Jerusalem. Well, we know what the plan is. If you've been here during the Genesis study that we've been doing, 
We understood from Genesis chapter 3 that God said there would be a rescuer who would come through the seed of a woman, and that one who would arrive one day would fulfill all of the purposes that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit laid out to restore planet Earth. So at this point in time, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they begin giving a laser focus to this particular walk. Matthew actually dedicates eight of his 28 chapters to this final three weeks. Mark, he gives six of his 16. John gives nine of 21. Almost 50% of the book of John is dedicated to this last section of time. And Luke... He begins recording this walk at chapter 9 when he says he set his face toward Jerusalem and he takes it all the way through the end of the book. So let me take you back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 for just a moment. Watch this again. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The second Greek word that's included this morning is this word steirizo. And Steirizo is talking about how he set his face like a flint, and it's talking about this. You're going in one direction, and you stop, and you turn and go in the opposite direction. So it has a literal activity to it. He's fixed his face toward Jerusalem. So when he set his face toward Jerusalem, there has to be a calculated, resolute walk going on here toward the cross. Resolutely, Scripture is saying, he set his face. He had to. He had to fix his resolve because what he's about to undertake is so incredibly hard. No one has ever had to do what he's about to do. So that means for us this morning, we're seeing Jesus with absolute self-discipline. There had to be conviction. There had to be unmovable resolve because he fully understood what lay ahead. He says in John, John records in chapter 10, that no one will take my life from me. He knows specifically what he's about to do, laying down his life. And this, as a follower of Christ, is incredibly sobering to me. Because it means that even though he knows, he's continuing this journey at an unrelenting pace. In spite of the suffering, in spite of the shame that he's going to endure on our behalf. Uh, along the way, what you notice in these three weeks leading up to it is this very deliberate actions begin emerging. And it's combined with this intentionality, which nobody can deter him from. And I find it to be astoundingly decisive. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to give you an example of this from Mark chapter 10, verse 32. It records this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who, were, who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus did not know what was going to happen. You take them to Mark chapter 10. He understood exactly what was going to happen, and he repeats this multiple times 
over and over. He said it so many times that the followers actually understood there was something that was going to happen monumental. And they were afraid of going back to Jerusalem because Jesus had just about been stoned previously. And that's why it says they're afraid. But where do you find Jesus? You find him at the head of the pack. He's leading them so resolutely determined to the goal that he has. He can't be deterred from it. So a question for you. If you had three weeks left, how would you spend it? What would you do with your final three weeks? I know what I'd be tempted to do. I'd be wanting to throw away my cell phone and throw away my laptop. Not that I don't love you all, but I do. But I'd want to go find a trout stream someplace and just hide. But not Jesus. That's not what he would do. That's not what he did. Even though these interruptions surface along the way, he's completely undeterred from the larger objective. So let me set the stage for you by looking at a few of what I'm calling interruptions that Jesus has on his walk. So I'm inviting you to put on your sandals, put on your robe, prepare to get a little bit dusty. We're going to walk alongside Jesus, and he's going to teach us now. Go with me to Luke 18, verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Now, mind you, Jericho is at the height of its splendor at this point. This is new Jericho, not old Jericho. I'll explain that in just a minute. And this is a vacation destination. In the first century, it's completely surrounded by palm trees and the aroma of rose gardens and citrus crops. The, the fruit orchards are so strong and so pugnant, you can smell them up to a mile away. People talked about how as you approach Jericho, you could smell it before you ever arrived. But verse 35 points out, we've got a blind man who arrives day after day to his spot on the road. He's blind, but he's not deaf. And he can hear this crowd, and they're walking by. And day by day, he hears people come in and out of the city, and, and they talk about the splendor of Herod's palace. And they talk about the beautiful gardens that are around Jericho. They talk about the citrus crops. They talk about Herod's winter palace, which has such splendor, they say that it rivals Caesar's palace. And I don't mean the one in Las Vegas. I mean the real Caesar's palace. It's so magnificent. People talk about it all the time. And the fragrance of the fruit trees from the groves, they just permeate the air. Now, a blind man with highly developed senses, because he's lost his sense of sight, he hasn't lost his sense of smell, he can smell the blossoms. And he can hear the bees buzzing by. And it's springtime in the Middle East, and the warmth of the Mediterranean morning sun on his face is very, very welcome. This one whom verse 35 speaks of knows the same emotions that you do. Day in and day out, he knows the exact same feelings, but he doesn't know what he actually looks like. And by this stage in life, his is a very tired very worn face, and his deep brown skin is heavily marked with lines from the stress of living life on the street. 
We're told in the story that Jesus is approaching Jericho. And the word Jericho, actually, in Hebrew, you see this word in your notes also. It, it's, it's the twin cities, and it's Jericho is the way it's pronounced by them. But it actually means the fragrant or the perfumed. And I told you they're coming into new Jericho. It lies to the south of old Jericho. Old Jericho was destroyed. That's the one that the Old Testament mentions. And we're told that Joshua was at the Battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. You remember that song? And so that story talks about the reality that God said Jericho, the former city, even though it was great, it would never be built again on its foundations. Well, what did they do? They picked up, they went a couple miles down the road and they built another Jericho just close by, but not right next to it. So Jesus is approaching the new Jericho. He's left the old Jericho. This region was originally cultivated as a plantation by the Greeks, and the Greeks had built a palace there, but Herod, he didn't like the palace that they left behind, so he had it leveled, he had it destroyed, and he built a 25-acre palatial mansion, a winter resort for himself. And Josephus, who's a historian that lives at this period of time, he says that even while there was snow in Jerusalem, it was still moderate and temperate, pleasant climates in Jericho. So that's the setting that Jesus is approaching, a vacation town a jewel in the midst of the wilderness. Many of the writers describe it as an oasis of fresh water, beautiful trees, productive crops. One thing that they grew there was balsam, large quantities of balsam bushes. For this reason, in the medical community, it was believed that balsam produced a salve that was a treatment for eye illnesses. It was an ointment for people who were blind. So it attracted people from all over the region, and they would come hoping to get a cure, seeking the balsam treatments. And we're told that there's one blind man among the many, probably hundreds who are in the area, and Mark actually tells us his name. It says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. They came to Jericho as he was leaving Jericho. Now, that's kind of messing your mind up, right? They came to Jericho, he's leaving because he's leaving the old town. He's coming to the new town. As, they were, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So Luke tells us he's approaching. Mark says he's leaving. And it's because you've got multiple witnesses at the accident scene. Peter weighs into this because we believe that Peter actually dictated to Mark the things that Mark wrote. What they all agree on, though, is you have a blind man, and he's sitting by the road, and he's begging. Uh, beggars are commonly found in the first century, especially at the city gates. And they have their, their cloak spread in front of them where they can receive coins or alms. People would flip coins in their direction, and it would land on their cloak. And this is where you'd want to be is at the city gate because people are walking in and out. So picture Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills where all the wealthy people are moving in and out of town. That's where they planted themselves because they would receive donations. As I mentioned to you, blindness was kind of a common problem in the first century. It happened as a result of children laying in a cradle at night, and there was a particular fly that would land on a baby's face while the parents were sleeping, and it gave a highly infectious bite. And if it bit in just the wrong spot on the eye, the cornea of the eye would become opaque. So they weren't born blind, but they received an infection, especially a severe infection, would take away their eyesight for life. So we know he's blind, but we also know he can hear well. 
but it doesn't take really good hearing to hear this very large crowd. It's far beyond normal. There's so many footsteps. There's so much pushing and shoving of this crowd. They're competing to stay with Jesus. So he calls out, what is going on here? We're told, according to what Matthew writes, a really large crowd is following Jesus. Well, that makes sense. He's at the apex of his notoriety. And the crowd is more than just a little excited because Passover is almost here. And so the air is electric. So logically, he says, what's going on? And then a bystander says to him, Yeshua, the Nazarite. He's right in front of you. So that helps us understand verse 38, which says, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So apparently word is out on the street and even blind beggars know that Jesus can do things. However, this guy uses a very specific title, son of David, and that's weighty. It's really weighty as you're going to see. It's not a confusing title whatsoever, but it's one that the crowd does not appreciate and especially the manner in which he's saying it. First of all, know this, in the first century, very few individuals who were healthy had any regard whatsoever for people with disabilities. And so they, they treated them almost as non-existent, an inconvenience in their life, and, and wouldn't give them much time, but what they would do is flip coins in their direction as they walked past them. They didn't really consider them worthy of their attention. So give them a coin and, and maybe they'll stop talking, and that was about it. The amazing thing about this guy is not his physical blindness. The amazing thing about him is his spiritual sight. He can't see anything physically, but spiritually, he absolutely sees far more than those who are surrounding him. So if you're a church person, stop and ask yourself this question. If you've seen this story before and you know it, ask yourself this. How does a blind guy sitting at the curb know that Jesus can heal him? Well, the clue is actually in his own statement. Bear down with me on this statement, Jesus, son of David. In biblical times, to announce someone as the son of David is actually the equivalent of saying Messiah. So he could just as easily say, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. See, the people are shutting him down because they don't want to hear him call out Messiah because it was common knowledge throughout the nation that the son of David would be the one who would inherit the throne. And so he begins calling out all the louder, son of David. John says this in John 7, 42. We record a question here. The scripture said that Christ the Messiah comes from the descendants of David. Think back Christmas-wise. The angel shows up and begins talking to Mary, says, you're going to have a child. You're not only going to have a child, you're going to have a son, and he shall be great, and he shall inherit the throne of his father, David, even at the point where the angel is announcing to Mary, he's being told that he will be a descendant of David. In two weeks, you're going to see people at Palm Sunday shouting, Hosanna to the son of David using that title. But this is not a title that's easily given out. This is actually the first time Son of David is mentioned in the Scriptures. 
as a public acclamation. During his time, his years of walking with the disciples, Jesus actually never encouraged anybody to call him the Messiah. He never allowed them to go there. He doesn't want to play that card too early. So before this point, it's only been brought up one other time, and that was in the form of a question. Publicly, people said, could this be the one? You might remember this if you were here during the parable series. We focused on this particular verse. Look with me at this. Matthew 12, verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? To which the elite around them said, preposterous, that can't be. The elite shot it down almost instantaneously. Verse 24 says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. In other words, he's the opposite. He's the son of Satan. He's not the son of God. Don't call him that. How dare you attach to him the title son of David. So here in this story, this is the first time publicly son of David is used and it's being shouted out by a blind beggar on the side of the street. So using the title son of David shows that he clearly understands a recognition. And that's why this is no helpless, feeble cry. It's a scream, and it's very loud, and it's very insistent. Actually, the word that's used here, the Greek word, the word kradzo, and this particular word is talking about an animal being trapped. It's used multiple times throughout the New Testament. It's the scream of someone who has no alternative but to scream. Actually, in the New Testament, it says it's, it's used of an insane person or of a woman who's in the midst of giving birth to a child because they think they're going to go insane at that point. The pain is so intense. So we find this word kradzo attached here. And a very interesting thing in the Greek language is this. It's written in the present imperative, which means this is a continuous action. It's going on and on and on, and it doesn't stop. He won't shut up. And it's no whisper it's a kradzo scream. It's very loud. It's very insistent. Even though the crowd tells him to stop, he won't do it. Why? Because he's convinced that he has the Son of God right in front of him. That God is right there. And God can do something about his desperate situation. Go with me to the next verse, verse 39. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I want you to notice something. Just pause for a moment. Are you noticing this is not the first time that he's called out, Son of David, have mercy on me? We're being told it's repetitive. We've already seen him call it out once. So question... Did God hear him the first time? Yeah. God saw him get up in the morning. God saw Bartimaeus stumble across the street trying to find his way to his place. 
God saw him sit down. This doesn't catch God by the surprise. Does does God hear him the first time? Verse 39 says, he kept crying out all the more. So there's this shout going on. It's even louder. And, And what's going on here in the background is that God is allowing this persistence. God's allowing this desperation to prove itself. And it's surfacing in his resolve. So ask yourself, what is going on with this persistence? What motivates him? Well, other than the obvious that he's blind, there's this bigger issue. He understands. He's got absolute conviction. He understands the one whom he cannot see is capable of meeting his need. You cannot see God this morning, but you know that he's capable of meeting your need. So we have an individual who's modeling that very thing. He physically cannot see God, just like you. But he's convinced that God can do what God says he can do. That God has the capacity, that he's capable. That's why Jesus says this guy has faith. This guy has real faith. Not faith in faith and not mustering up good feelings like if I just think really hard. Jesus says, you know where your faith is at. Your faith is in me in my capacity. Now, he's so loud, I've told you, and he's so persistent, it absolutely, it stops Jesus in his tracks, and that's not an exaggeration. See, the title has to be catching him and catching his attention. I actually think, and I'm just kind of speculating here, I think this is a moment when a slight smile came to the face of Jesus. I know he's determined, I know he's resolute, I know he's got his face set towards the cross, and nothing's going to change him, but he hears this guy screaming out, son of David, son of David, son of David, and I'm thinking in that moment, okay, okay, and there's a smile that comes at that moment, and we're telling ourselves as we read this that he's not been publicly announced by that title until this point, even though It belongs to him. Let me take you back one more moment to a Christmas verse. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. It says, the angel interacting with Mary. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Amen, new hope. Never going to end. When he's on the throne, when he's in power, there's no electing him out of office. He's there to stay, and it's a permanent righteous rule. So this is a title of royalty. So verse 40, part A says, And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. Do you think in that moment that Bartimaeus' heart was about to leap out of his chest? I'm thinking... I'm thinking that's exactly what's going on here. Because in the stopping, in the stopping, there is volumes of information about the nature of our God. What takes place next in these few moments between the creator and the created is priceless. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus does not keep on walking as though he has no time. Like, don't you realize I have appointments? 
Do you not know that I have the cross before me? They're waiting to proclaim me the king of Israel as I walk down the hill on Palm Sunday. You think I have time for you? He doesn't keep on walking. He stops. And I love that Jesus does not shh Bartimaeus. As a matter of fact, most importantly, he does not reject the title whatsoever. He allows it to stand. It's just a few weeks before the crucifixion. And this guy has made the proclamation of all proclamations. So verse 40, part B. Watch how this develops. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? How many of us would love to have Jesus ask us that question? Like, I'll sign up for that one. <laughs> After I get through my list of physical need, uh, oh man, we could go all day on that one. See, there's a really beautiful touch here by Mark. Luke, you've seen his statement, but Mark's also writing what was going on at the accident scene. And, and let me show you from Mark chapter 10, verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He's calling for you, throwing aside his cloak. Only an eyewitness would know that detail. Only an eyewitness who was there noticed that he threw aside his cloak. So I want you to picture this moment. This is like sitting at the secretary of state when your number is called. Like, I'm here. He gets in my name. I'm signing up. I want to be there. So he's so elated at hearing these words. He jumps up. But he can't find Jesus, so he needs somebody to bring him to him. But here's the thing that's going on in the background. When you're a beggar, nothing is more precious to you than your cloak. If you're living on the street, this is your cardboard box. This is the thing that shelters you from the storm. It's what you crawl into every night. When the winds come, you're tucking it up around your face. But it's also the thing that you receive the donations of alms, the money, and food. And it's laying out in front of you. We're told he leaves it behind. So that this is included by Peter and Mark writing these things down. I'm, I'm reading this as though he's so certain of being healed by Jesus, he figures he can find his cloak later. That thing has served its purpose. I'm leaving it behind. So comes this really big question in Luke 18 from verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? And this is such a huge component I find it absolutely fascinating that Jesus asks him what he wants. Like, isn't it kind of obvious? He's blind and he's a beggar. Is Jesus playing games with him? Isn't it apparent that he needs his eyesight to be restored? What I see going on here is that God wants him to articulate the need. And he's teaching the disciples without them even knowing that they're being taught. How many times do they look back on this moment? See, there's two issues when we go to God in prayer. And I, I'm, not, I'm really rabbit trailing. I'm not trying to go off into the prayer issue, but I, I just find this as a side note we should spend a moment on. There's two issues when we're talking to God that generally happen to us. 
One is that we generalize. And so typically in prayer, we'll say to God, God, we just bless the whole world. Okay. Like, give me some specifics. And then the other component is we tend to try and impress God with really big flowery words. We try and speak in terms we don't normally speak in. I find as I examine Scripture that God is not impressed with big words. And he's not impressed with generalization. Rather, the purest, humblest, most direct request, and this guy gets it, and he gets it very quickly because he's very clear, he's very pure, and he's very direct about his need. Luke 18 records verse 41, and he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus, I just want to see. I want to see again. Can I have that? See, when it comes to prayer, I have to ask myself, am, am I that persistent? Are you specific with God? Are you persistent? I find that's an area that it's a weakness in my life. I'm not saying I'm bad at it, but I'm just not as good at being persistent. Like what I see in this example here. This guy was not going to let anybody stop him. And what persistence requires is humility. You really have to humble yourself to be that persistent. In verse 42, it records, Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. My mind immediately goes back to our Genesis study. When I see God just speaking the universe into existence, he only has to speak here. That's what Luke records, but Matthew includes a detail that we don't get unless we look at Matthew. And Matthew records this in chapter 20, verse 34. Jesus had compassion and touched him. Haptomai, it means literally to fix yourself to. Now, I've wondered this. I've wondered what it was like to grab hold of his grizzly beard laying his hands on his face. I'm suspecting this guy is very, very grimy. He'd been living life on the street, and it's dusty in the Middle East. His lines are crisscrossed on his face, and he's been living with stress, and Jesus is cradling his face in his hands. In this moment, the creator of the universe is reaching across a social chasm. He's reaching across a schedule chasm. He's reaching across a religious chasm. And he's holding a face that he formed while he alters the very nature of physical law. Trust me, I'm not rabbit trailing with you, and this is not going to feel too much like a hard shift, I hope. But just think in terms of what you know about the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says that something is always descending, it's decreasing. In other words, when something's hot, it's automatically beginning to get colder unless there's something to fire it up. If something is dead or dying, it doesn't automatically just improve. There's entropy and things are in a descent, getting worse and worse spinning down. In other words, this. Once dead, optic nerves don't have the capacity to take in vision. Yet inside the eyeball, the very eyeball that God built, life begins to spark. 
The synaptic connections are instantaneously, in a microsecond, coming together. Where darkness once dominated his life, now light explodes through the ocular lens. And the profusion of reds and blues, the rose garden, the balsam trees, everything that he's heard about. And in front of his face are the very eyes of the Son of God looking back at him, looking in his eyes, twinkling with delight. I'm sure God's smiling on him with tenderness. According to what we see here in Scripture, according to God, what made him well? It says this in verse 42. Your faith has made you well. Is it faith in faith? Is it misapplied faith? No, it's faith in God's capacity. Faith in God's power. Faith in God's capability to do what no one else can do. Not just mustering up feel-good thoughts. What Jesus is saying here is faith is the means. It's not the cause of the healing. The cause is God's power. God is the one who brings the healing. So we see this. It finishes in verse 43. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Is he still dirt poor? Yep. Does he still smell? Sure. He doesn't even have a pair of Ray-Bans. There's no sunglasses to keep out the sun, but are you noticing the change in attitude of the crowd? They've gone from shunning him to worshiping because God's work is evident, and where God's work is evident, worship is a natural outflow. That's a cool interruption. See, the crucifixion is just over the horizon. It's not that many days away. And resolutely, Jesus has fixed his face on the cross, yet he stops to deal with a blind beggar on the street. And that's true because God walks in compassion. He's the God of compassion, a comforter to those who are in trauma. Even though he's focused on the bigger issue of the cross, he's still going to demonstrate the depth of God's compassion while walking toward his own agony. Earlier, I called this episode an interruption, an interruption in Jesus' schedule. I don't think God would call it an interruption. See, these things which pop up along the way on his direction to his ultimate objective, those interruptions you're going to see in the next two weeks, they actually are the mission. Because it's the compassion of God that drove Jesus Christ, our Lord, to the cross. It's the mercy of God that sent him to the cross. He's allowing this to be illustrated on the way. I'm wondering how many times the disciples remembered this moment. The, the reality is that this, this pushes me. It pushes me to never be so preoccupied that I don't have time to be compassionate. Never in too much of a hurry. Anybody else here in too much of a hurry in your life or just me? Don't look at me that way. You're making me feel like I'm the only one. 
I know that I am. I know I have that capacity to be so much about my goals that I can lose sight of these opportunities. Jesus never in too much pain to be insensitive to the despair of others. Slow down. Come to a stop. The disciples will soon be looking back on this healing in Jericho, and they're going to realize that Jesus models this right up to the very end. For you and I, staying focused and staying on track requires setting your face like a flint, and it is pure determination. And that pure determination to finish well, to go to the end, is a mindset to run the race with our eyes on the prize. I know many of you know Hebrews 1. Let me, let me close with this. Look at this. Hebrews 1, or 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus resolutely fixed his mind on what he had to accomplish because what he had to accomplish is so excruciating. Without discipline, without the resolve, he could not. There had to be resolve because it would be so much better just to hang out in Jericho and heal some blind people and not go to the cross. It's a vacation town. It's a wonderful place to be. I'll just stay here and relieve a bunch of whole human earthly suffering. I'll just hang out here. But the greater goal, the plan that had to be fulfilled, the greater issue is just over the horizon, and that will demand the ultimate conviction. So next week, you're going to see Jesus walking in conviction as he encounters a cemetery and a dead friend by the name of Lazarus. But we'll save that for next time. I'm going to ask that you would pray with me that these things won't escape our mind, but rather that we would walk in compassion this week as we keep our eyes fixed on what God called us to. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank you for every single soul who's been part of this. We do not take lightly the examination of your word and what you've shown us. And nor do we take lightly, Father, the way in which your Holy Spirit has nudged us. So I pray that you would cause us this week not only to reflect on what we've learned this morning, but to be deliberate about taking action, to walk in compassion where you bring opportunities our way. We'll call them interruptions, Father, where you interrupt our schedule. Help us to see that as your opportunity that you brought to us. I pray, Father, that I would be deliberate that way and that my friends would be deliberate that way, that we might advance the kingdom, especially, Father, for those who are, are looking for some ray of hope in their life, someone who just needs to be encouraged. God, use us. Use us to point them to the cross of Jesus, the ultimate measure of compassion. I pray for that. I ask for that. Use us in that way as you advance the kingdom through the work of New Hope, through all your people who are part of this. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our soon-coming King, and all God's people said.
Amen.